This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 23, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Businesses and families are building up cash reserves, self-insuring against these uncertain times. But is the desire to hold cash excessive? If it's the so-called paradox of thrift at work, should the government tax cash holdings to get businesses investing and people spending again? Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, comments. A lot of people have been complaining about excessive money demand, that is, money that uh, businesses are recouping from whatever job cuts and things like that, they're trying to get to a profitable position, uh, that whatever profits that they're yielding aren't aren't being sent out to the broader economy. People are continuing to hold cash uh, larger. Stock, yes, stock, credit card, stockpiling. Or- credit card debt is on its way down. And some people have said, well, look, if we want to get this money back out there, we need to change some tax rules that will exactly. get, get the money back out in the economy so that we do not suffer from this paradox of thrift where everybody's holding cash rationally and collectively it's an irrational action. I mean, for instance, one of the things that's been talked about is taxing corporations on you know, excess holdings of cash. Uh, and one of the interesting facets of this entire uh, business cycle uh, correction is that non-financial corporations came into this crisis with record levels of cash. So even before the banking sector uh, contracted and credit contracted, Companies had already stocked up on cash, essentially. Now, part of that was a lot of corporations, I think very astutely, wanted to make sure that they had you know, liquidity going into the crisis. Uh, and a lot of them were able to do that. Um, now, some of them have still tried to maintain large cash balances in terms of corporations because you don't necessarily know that credit is going to be available. What we saw early in the crisis was a lot of corporations drawing down on lines of credit. This is why... At the early stage of the credit crunch, you actually did not see the aggregate amount of credit in the economy decline because you have these lines of credit. And you can think of it on a personal level. Your credit card is a line of credit. Well, businesses maintain lines of credit as well. In although the bank might not want to give you credit, they already agreed to. And they agreed to do it when times were good. Uh, so you did see for quite a while where banks were able to – you saw for quite a while where businesses were able to draw down on pre-existing lines of credit and actually maxed out on those lines of credit. Now, you got beyond the point where the, some of those lines of credit were not renewed. They don't, weren't outstanding forever. In, in expectation of that, lots of businesses started to pile up cash uh, to make sure that they had not simply for investment purposes, but also to pay their bills. Um, for instance, you also might use lines of credit to make payroll. So some of that you need and you're not sure where the disruptions are. Uh, and there was also some concerns about essentially you know, bank safety. I mean, up until the crisis, the typical constraint on a uh, an account was insured for $250,000. Now, $250,000 sounds like a lot for, you know, it might not be a lot for you, Caleb, but for the most of us, that's a lot to have in the bank in cash. However, a business that makes its payroll through the bank might have considerably more than that going in and out. Uh, so there was a definitely concern that while the rest of us were not necessarily worried about our deposits disappearing with a bank failure, businesses needed to be concerned about if I had my money at Wachovia or WAMU, what happens 
to the ability to make payroll if one of these institutions gets in trouble. So that was a very real concern on the part of business that was absent uh, from households. I will note as an aside, there is private deposit insurance available that many businesses do buy, but most small, mid-sized businesses do not. There seems, though, to be some sort of conceit that uh, looking at the data, there's not enough of something going on. And so we need to change some rules to make this thing that we all like occur. And uh, with regard to cash holdings, uh, you've just illustrated a bunch of reasons why people would rationally want to hold cash. And it, it seems at least a little bit conceited to say to someone, hey, you, you're not investing enough. Or you're not, uh, you're not getting ready for this recovery that so far has been fairly sluggish. And, and part of the disconnect is, and, and this is really where you know, sort of Keynesian notions about liquidity traps or you know, excess demand for money, as you mentioned, have come about, is that there's the thought that you need to hold cash because you don't know what the future is. You know that uncertainty has increased. You know that the economic environment has gotten worse and may get worse. So either you as a household or a business stock up on cash in a precautionary sense that really that makes perfect sense from the individual level. And as you, as you mentioned, it's when this gets aggregated up that it becomes a problem because it might make sense for you to save. But if we all save, then that's less consumption. And the argument would be, well, if there's less consumption, that's less demand, which means there's less income. So you sort of have this spiral as the way – a downward spiral is the way that the typical Keynesian analysis put it. Now, that's one part of it, which is the consumption side of it. The other part of it is as well is that if you're hoarding cash, then you're not essentially giving it to the bank. And one of the core parts of Keynesian analysis was to argue that savings and investment became disconnected, that they did not equal a very standard – you know. Macroeconomics 101 is that savings equals investment, uh, and the interest rate balances the two. Uh, Keynes posited that you know during a liquidity trap, you would not what borrowers would demand in terms of interest rates was just so far in excess of what businesses would pay that you would just have this massive difference between desired savings and desired investment. Part of the problem with that analysis, and this may may or may not be true. I don't think it was true even in the 30s, but it becomes less true today. Because unlike some of the stories in the 30s, we're not all running home putting our cash under our mattress. We're leaving our cash in the bank. You know, I might be getting, you know, less than 1% on a CD, but I haven't gone down to the bank and decided I needed that money. Uh, and a part of that is, of course, admittedly because deposit insurance is there and you know the money's going to be there. Uh, so the question is, the bank has that money to lend out. Now, whether the bank believes that there's a demand for that investment or whether there's actually safe investment from the bank's perspective is a separate question. But the hoarding of cash by households is certainly not what is keeping people from, from making funds available for investment, which is what it would be in a traditional Keynesian analysis. And that's also true. We don't think of it as much, but it's also true on the corporate side. As I mentioned earlier, you might keep a very large transaction account uh, as a business to make payroll. But you know the, the bank will pretty much get a sense of how much you're going to draw down every month to make payroll, you know, and they'll lend out the money to meet them to meet it in a way so that they're not lending out more money than they can pay you back to make your payroll. So you are keeping it in a bank. It does become lendable, um, and you also saw, particularly before the crisis, but a lot of banks, a lot of, of um, a lot of non-bank companies, for instance, would keep their excess cash in the repurchase overnight market. 
where you'd commercial paper market. So you could be IBM or you'd be GM and you'd have a lot of cash on your books. But actually what you were doing was essentially lending that cash out overnight and somebody would give you treasury securities or something. Uh, so a lot of these companies that were very big holders of cash, one of the things that facilitated that was they could actually earn a return on that cash by lending that on an overnight secured basis. Now, whether we, we it's a separate debate whether that overnight lending was actually just facilitating speculation or facilitating investment or whatever. Uh, I think it was clear that some level of investment was being facilitated by that, and that simply because corporations were keeping large cash balances does not mean in and of itself that those cash balances were unavailable for investment. There are tax benefits that go along with debt exactly. that do not extend to you holding cash under normal circumstances. That, that applies to both corporations and uh, individuals. What's, is there a role for that here? I mean, does it, how does that play in here? In, in a sense, it pushes against it. I mean, one of, the, you know, one of the real interesting sort of anomalies, if you will, going into the crisis was, as I mentioned, corporate, non-bank corporations were holding a tremendous amount of cash. Going into the financial crisis, this is despite the fact that all the tax advantages for corporations are very much in favor of you not holding cash instead of you holding debt. So many corporations were arguably deciding that the reasons I have for holding cash were even stronger than the tax advantages for me not holding cash and putting it in debt. To a limited extent, the same is true on the household level. Um, at least since 86, you know, you and I have not been able to deduct all interest payments as it was prior to 86. We, credit card interest. Yes, even credit card interest was deductible prior, uh, prior to 86. Uh, I, I guess in a sense, if you wanted to get people spending again, maybe what you could do is uh, you know, reimpose the deductibility of credit card interest. Um, but it's worth saying that credit cards were much more restricted in use you know, in the pre-early 80s. Uh, you know, we were nowhere near the level of credit card debt. Um, but that said... On the household level, there is a tax advantage for you putting more of your money into basically getting a better, less cash and having more of a mortgage. And there's a tax advantage to that. Um, but we are seeing a deleveraging going on, uh, you know, both in the household sector and in the corporate sector. Uh, and it really is to try to get back to what is a more sustainable rate. One of the real tensions here is, and it's and one of the things I always find fascinating is that many of the voices who are the, who are the loudest now about, you know, we need to get cons consumption going, and you have all these cash balances, excess demand for money. Were some of the very same people who six, seven years ago were complaining that we, that we as a nation weren't saving enough. Now, I think at the time that they were correct about we weren't saving enough. Uh, but you know, maybe Paul Krugman should tell us what the optimal rate of savings is, so when we know we're there, we can stop. You know, but 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 to always argue that either we're saving too little or not enough, and therefore the government should intervene. Uh, you know, really presumes that we know what the right level of savings is when we don't. Um, so I do think that for us to get back to an economy where we are investing in capital that will increase productivity, which will ultimately increase wages, you need to have savings increase because that is the money that's need to make investment available. Now, of course, the Keynesian solution was always that if people were hoarding money, then the government could essentially substitute for that by injecting money into the system itself. Now, part of the problem that we're in today, which, which, which to me sort of unravels a lot of the Keynesian framework altogether, is that in the Keynesian framework was here you have households on one side that were hoarding cash. So, so, so it's not available for investment. And at this time, in the 30s, you might not have had it in the bank. Uh, 
So the argument was you would have monetary policy, or the government would be different, but monetary policy could inject cash into the banking system, but the banks themselves would lend. But that's not the problem today. You know, it's not a shortage of cash for banks. Uh, banks can get plenty of cash from the government, and, they, and they're sitting on plenty of cash. One of the interesting things that you saw during the financial crisis was a flight to banks. If you actually look at the level of, of deposits at banks, it increased throughout the crisis. People took money, took hundreds of billions of dollars out of the stock market, hundreds of billion dollars out of their mutual funds, and put it into bank deposits. So we've actually seen the, the uh, amount of loanable funds in the banking system massively expand over the last couple of years. Uh, so any injection into that from the Federal Reserve in monetary policy is going to hit the same sort of roadblocks that the consumer surplus of cash is hitting as well, which is one reason why I think even though we have uh, in nominal terms zero interest rates and in real terms negative interest rates being engineered by the Fed, it has not turned the economy around. And it's simply because we are not in a we are not in a situation where the supply of funds for investment is the problem. Mark Calabria is director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.